nothing greater than your son and his dying for us and you raising him from the dead. We thank you, Father, for your word that's alive and powerful. We thank you for one another. Father, we ask today that you would uh, have the Holy Spirit guide and direct us in, in our service this morning. We pray for every member of our congregation, whether they're with us today or not. We also pray, Father, for the Christians in the United States and around the world. And we would just uh, ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, we will uh, we will have our message in just a couple of minutes. Uh, first, I just want to um, bring to your attention a few announcements. Um, happy to tell you that next Sunday we'll be back um, in our in-person service in the church building. So the, looking forward to that very much. As, as many of you know, our missionary organization this month is, uh, has been chosen People Ministries. Um, they, are, of course, are an organization that witnesses to Jewish people around the world. They're asking for our prayers. They are uh, asking particularly for our prayers for their ministry in Tel Aviv, Israel. Um, and they did praying in particular for the health and safety of their staff and finding creative ways to minister to people there. Um, and also we pray in particular for their Zoom Bible studies and uh, as well as their other other online research and discipleship. So please keep them in prayer. Um, we will, at the end of the month, be providing them with a financial gift. If you'd like to uh, join in on that, by all means do so. Just make sure that however it is that you send that gift, that you indicate that it is for Chosen People Ministries. want to remind everybody again as well that uh, we have a homeless ministry of Bud and Kim Dungan. They're always in need of different things, um, food, financial support, blankets, other things that uh, they are useful for them and that are needed by their um, their clients, if, if you will, the folks that they preach the gospel to and then try to assist so that they can um, get out of their homeless situation. So please keep that in prayer. Um, please, uh, uh, if you have anything that you'd like to give, you can um, either, either let us know or just bring it on Sunday. Um, and that'll be, that'll be a good thing. We want to be supportive of that ministry, as well as the evangelists that go around the world. All right. With that, let's begin our, our service this morning. In the Bible portion of it, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. title of today's message is the law is not made for a righteous person the law is not made for a righteous person that comes from uh, this passage that we're going to re read this morning in verse 9 but we're going to begin back in verse 3 even though we um, covered that last week uh, because there is uh, material this morning that harkens back to that we're going to begin in verse 3 this morning our new new series here on First Timothy. Do you want to remind everybody to continue to be uh, reading the the uh, letter of First Timothy um, from start to finish? It'll really help you understand things a lot better. See the connections. See where Paul's headed um, as we begin this book together. First Timothy chapter one verse three. Paul writing to Timothy, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, 
which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law we know oops. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We're going to pick things up today in verse 6, but we started in verse 3 because I want you to see the context in verses 3 to 5. In verse 6, again, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Paul, in verse 6, is referring, notice, to straying from these things. What are these things? Well, they have to be something he's already mentioned, and indeed, that's what he's talking about. Make sure you understand that these things, that expression points back to verse 5. These things are love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some men have strayed from these things. These are the, this is the purpose of the instruction. They want to be teachers, and yet they've moved off the, 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 the heartbeat of it, the, the whole focus of it, the goal of it, which is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And they've been turned away from that. Now, Paul in verses 6 to 11 is going to address the issue of using the law properly. Focus this morning is on the law. But he's going to say, listen, there's a proper use, but that's not how the false teachers have been using the law. Instead, they've been promoting strange doctrines. They've been promoting myths and genealogies. They didn't understand the proper use of the law. They were using it unlawfully. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things, love and a pure heart, have turned to fruitless discussion. The, the thing is coming out of their mouth are going to bear no fruit. They've got nothing to do with the objective, the goal of love. They've turned aside to fruitless discussion. The words that they say are meaningless. They want to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying. In other words, the, they don't understand the words coming out of their mouths, and they don't understand the matters, the subjects about which they make confident assertions. They know nothing about the subjects that they're talking about. The words don't make any sense, and they can't get anywhere near the subjects that, that they think they're making confident assertions about. Have you ever heard people like that? They're, they're, they're so confident that they're right, and they're totally off base. That's them. That's for these people, these men that had strayed from the path that would lead to instruction 
that would lead to love from a pure heart. They've turned away from that. At one time, they were headed in the right direction. Notice you can't stray from these things unless at one time you were on the path with those things. So they they took a wrong turn. They were headed the right way, and then they took a wrong turn. They strayed from the pursuit of sound doctrine. They strayed. They turned off the road that was pursuing love. And instead, they turned onto a wide path, but that wide path led to no fruit. It led to gibberish. They wanted to be, in other words, what they definitely were not. They wanted to be what they were not. They wanted to be teachers of the law, but that was exactly the opposite of what they were actually. They had no training. It was clear. They had no qualifications to teach the law. But in particular, the thing that really stuck stuck out to Paul about what they were doing was they didn't have any clue about the proper use of the law now. In other words, there was the law. It was given to Moses. All right. It, it, it regulated the behavior of the nation of Israel. Okay, but but then Jesus Christ has now died and risen from the dead. That's the gospel message. And on the basis of the gospel message, now the law has a particular narrow use. And they didn't have an understanding of that. They didn't understand that in light of the glorious gospel, the usage of the law has narrowed. And we're going to see that. All right. They didn't understand the proper use of the law in light of the gospel that Paul taught. So instead, they babbled on incoherently. You know, if somebody gets up and they got to talk for an hour and they don't know what they're talking about, they just kind of talk about this, talk about that, talk about stories, talk about memories, they, anything they can hum, talk about. Oh, look at this. This I found this amazing thing in the scriptures. And I just remember and I'm going to tell you all about it, even though I have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, they were speculating, that word speculations. Don't you hate it when people speculate without any facts? That's what these men were doing. They, was, they didn't understand at all the proper use of the law now, but instead they speculated on things that they didn't understand. Now, Paul is saying that about these ignorant false teachers. He's saying, listen, you don't have any understanding of what it means to be a teacher of the law. You don't understand what you're saying. You don't understand the matter of the subject matter. So in other words, he is saying something negative about their use of the law. Now, if he had stopped there, then you might wonder, is there anything good about the law? So Paul definitely didn't want people to get the wrong idea in the other direction. Somehow he, that he was saying the law was completely irrelevant. It wasn't, but it had to be used properly. There was, in other words, there was a proper use of the law as well as an improper use of the law. Let me say that again. There's a proper use of the law, even now, even in the church age, but an improper use of it as well. And it's just, we're going to see it's a very simple distinction that separates into two categories. We're going to see that in a moment. So verses 8 to 11 are now going to be that Paul giving a short teaching on the proper use of the law. Now that the gospel has been revealed, you have to remember that things changed. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, and now ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, everything, not everything, but things changed. Okay, everything in connection with God's people. All right, all things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. 
for the church. All right. So that was a, that was a distinction that these men failed to make, and we're going to see the, the consequences of that. All right. So a proper use of the law now that the gospel has been revealed. Let's now look at verse eight. First, First Timothy chapter one, verse eight. These people didn't know anything about what they were teaching. But Paul says, we do know. See, we know what? That the law is good. The law is good if. So he begins with a clear statement here in verse 8. The law is good. He would say the same thing in Romans chapter 7. The law is good and just. And it is. The, the contents of the law. The righteousness of the law, as Paul would write in Romans 8, is good. What does that mean? It means that the, the, the fact that the law says, listen, honor your father and your mother, that's good. The fact that the law says don't covet, that's good. It's, bringing, it, it's showing the right and the wrong there. So it's good. And by the way, the good here in verse 8, you know, looking at the Greek, it means morally good, which we understand. But even beyond that, noble and beautiful. There is a way in which the law is noble and beautiful, and it sets a standard, and it reflects the heart of God as far as how the basics of how, how he wants people to orient to him and to one another. All right? Mostly in the negative, actually almost entirely in the negative, with the exception of a couple of the commandments. By the way, we're going to look at the commandments today. And the reason we're going to do that is because Paul's going to follow the Ten Commandments in order as he walks through this section um, from verses 9 and 10. But the law is good if. You see, it, stepping back for a second, if you were to do a concordance search on law in the New Testament, you would see that Paul uses that word. It's nomos in the Greek, but it's several different ways. And he's very particular about it. He sees it's an instrument that must be wielded with precision. It's an instrument that must be wielded with precision. In other words, always be very focused when Paul uses that word law. Okay? He will use it in different ways. And you have to be clear and alert about about the specific use he makes of it. For example, he might say, and he does say in, in, cha in chapter 8, he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, see, some, the, the problem is a lot of people want to make law always the Mosaic law in the New Testament. And many times it's not. Okay, in that I probably should have had you go there. But when he says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, see, the Spirit and, and our being guided by the Spirit means that we are no longer under the law. So that word could not possibly mean the Mosaic law. And in fact, Paul uses it as this word as a very precise instrument that means that, that has a specific meaning in a specific setting. Sometimes he sees the law in terms of a specific commandment. The law says that thou shalt not covet, focuses on one commandment. Other times he uses the word law to mean the entire Torah, all five books, of all the first five books of, of the Old Testament, Genesis, and all the way to Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Sometimes he uses the word in that way. But he also uses it in a third sense, just to mean a principle. The pr principle 
of 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 life in the spirit, the the, the principle, or even the govern governing power. So we so we have to be very clear and take a little bit to observe the context in order to understand the nuance of how he uses that word, and it's different in different sections, in different passages. The law is good, verse eight. The law is good, but he doesn't stop there. He says, what if? See, under certain conditions, the law is good. And he says it generally here in verse 8. He says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. By the way, that word lawfully can, can also mean appropriately, properly. He's saying, look, it's good if you use it correctly. I mean, it's the same thing with, with any tool, right? You can say that um, a saw is good if you use it properly. To saw wood. If you're using it to saw somebody's arm off, then it's unlawfully. You see, see, tools can be used and, and abused, and no, and nothing uh, more so than the law when it comes to how it's handled during the church age. Okay. So the fact that he says if one uses the law properly, appropriately, implies something. What is it? It's possible to use the law in a way that is unlawful and ugly and improper and inappropriate. Now, that has nothing to do with the law. It has to do with the one misusing it, using it in a manner that it's not intended to be used. Now, that, of course, begs the question, how should the law be used? If there's a right use and a wrong use, what's the right use of the law? Well, at this point, Paul is now going to redirect the question. It's the right question, but he's going to frame it in the correct way. He's basically going to change from a how, how is the law used, to a for whom. And that's the key to understanding this passage. There's an appropriate use of the law for one group of people and an inappropriate use of the law for the other group. Okay, and they, by the way, when you separate the two groups, you cover all people. And we'll see that in a moment. That's the issue. To whom? Ask the question, who? In verses 9 and 10, he will talk about people. And he's going to say the law has been established for one group, but not for the other group. People. Throughout this, now we're going to look, he's going to talk about, it looks like he's talking about vices. In, in verses 9 and 10. But really, he's talking about the people that practice those. And you see, that's an important difference to make. We're going to see why in a little while. He's focused on people. He's saying, listen, I want you to understand that there's a, a law is appropriate for one group, and it's not appropriate for the other. It's been established for one group. It has not been established now in the church age for that other group. And quite simply... The law serves no purpose for the righteous. He says that the law was not made for a righteous person. That, so that there's no, there's no application of the law for a righteous person. And see, that's the gist of the problem with the false teachers. Because in all they went about and how they spoke about the law, they made a false assumption. Because they assumed that the law was made for the righteous. Hmm. Are they the only ones who ever made that mistake? Or have we seen this throughout church history? It's the latter. We've seen from the, almost the very beginning, that well, from the very beginning, that, that men have come in and used the law unlawfully, 
Why? Because they used it for, to direct it to the righteous, the believers in Christ. The law was not made for the righteous in the church age. It was, it, so, so now the question is, who are the righteous? See how this works? It just leads from one question to another. Right, how is it used appropriately? That means who is it for? And now the question is, who are the righteous? If it doesn't serve any purpose for the righteous, who are the righteous? Now, he's going to frame the law in terms of the gospel. We've already seen that. He's going to end in verse 11 with the gospel. He's going to talk about the law, going to end with the gospel, and everything he says about the law is, is said in view of the gospel. So let's think about the gospel, okay? The gospel, let's think about the gospel and, and the righteous. Well, the first thing we need to understand is if you're talking about the law in view of the gospel, which makes which, which has the Father declaring sinners and the ungodly to be righteous, how does that work? Well, the main thing to understand is that no one can make himself righteous. You can perform all the works of the law that you want, and it won't get you any closer to being righteous. Now, the law can do things. The law can restrain evil. That's, that's the use of the law properly. We're going to see that in verses 9 and 10. The law brings out sin. It brings it to the surface so it can be dealt with. The law judges sin. As, as think about the Ten Commandments. And, they, and in fact, many of the things, that are, if you violated the Ten Commandments under the, uh, the dispensation of Israel, many of, that, many of those violations came with them, the sentence of death. That was part of the law. While it does have those functions, it's absolutely powerless to make a sinner into a saint. Absolutely. The law cannot make a sinner into a saint saint in other words the law has no power to make a man righteous there is nothing about the law that should come into the picture when you're talking about a righteous man because it can't do it please turn to romans 8 romans 8 verse 3 romans chapter 8 verse 3 the law it's good but only when it's used correctly it cannot be if you're if you're thinking that the law makes a man righteous, then you're wrong. If you're teaching that, if you're teaching that the law has something to do with the life of the righteous, you're wrong. It has nothing to do with this. See, that's that's what we call legalism. Okay, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians still think that the law has a purpose for believers. It doesn't. It has no purpose. Okay. It doesn't mean that the righteousness of the law doesn't, when I say it has no purpose, it doesn't mean that it's okay for Christians to kill, to murder, to steal. Of course not. But the law no longer serves that purpose for believers because somebody else has replaced it. You see, that somebody else is the Holy Spirit. See, we are now guided by the Holy Spirit. We are not under the law. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, there are some things that the law cannot do. Now why? Weak as it was through the flesh. The law is good, but it's weak because of our flesh. God came in and did it instead. How did he do it? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and as an offering for sin. This is the gospel. And when he did that, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement, or actually better here, the righteousness of the law, notice this, might be fulfilled in us. What is that saying? It's saying the law can't make us righteous. But once we believe in Jesus Christ on the basis of the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, now it's possible for the righteousness of the law, the principles behind the law, to be fulfilled in us. How? We who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I hope you can see now that law comes on the scene, was on the scene, and then Christ died and rose from the dead. And we are no longer under the law, even though the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in us because why? We walk according to the Spirit. Now, the Spirit goes way beyond the righteousness of the law, by the way. Um, and that's why we're not under the law, because the calling of the Christian goes way beyond the righteousness of the law. Way be, it goes way beyond you know, simply honoring your mother and father. We still do, but it goes way beyond that. It goes way beyond thou shalt not bear false witness. It goes all the way to all the things that we are to do with our tongue and building up and edifying one another. And so our life now is way beyond whatever was prescribed in the Mosaic Law. And that's the point. But again, it does raise the question, who are the righteous? Please turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I want you to be crystal clear that here in, 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 in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, when he talks about that the law has no was not made for the righteous, I want you to be crystal clear who the righteous are. And of course, I'll save you the suspense. The righteous are believers in Christ. But I wanted you to understand why. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous are those who live by faith. The righteous of those are those, the righteous man believes in Christ. He believes and then he's declared righteous by the Father. So in other words, the righteous are those who live by faith. That's what Romans 1.17 says. The righteous are those who live by faith. Now finally, please turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And we'll put our definitive point on this um, definition of the righteous. Please turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians 2.16. The law cannot make a man righteous. So if you're thinking the law has anything to do with making a righteous man, you're wrong. Okay. In fact, in fact, Paul will go so far in Romans 7 as to say, the law makes things worse. <coughs> he says the same thing in Romans 5. The law came in that the offense would increase. There's no way that the law can make a person righteous. Okay. But instead, the Bible says what? The righteous are those who live by faith. Now let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, 
even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified, seen as righteous in the eyes of God, declared righteous by God, so that we may be justified. How? By faith in Christ. The righteous are the believers in Christ, not by the works of the law. Notice, we're believers in Christ are justified by that faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The law has no power to make a man righteous. No, the righteous are those who are believers in Christ. The righteous are, uh, righteous are those who have been declared so. Declared righteous, that's what justified means. Declared righteous by God on the basis of faith, not of the works of the law. So I hope you can see that because of that, the law serves no purpose for the Christian. We've died to the law. However, the law does serve a purpose for the unbeliever. Remember I said the question is two groups. Here's the law. It's used improperly when it's applied to Christians. It's used properly. It can be used properly when it's applied to the unbeliever. Now we're going to see that. We're going to go forward in First, in first Timothy chapter 1 and see now the proper use, the lawful use, the appropriate use of the law. First Timothy 1.9. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. And now we've, we've, we've demonstrated that the righteous person is the believer in Christ. The law is not made for the believer in Christ. Let me say that again. The law is not made for the believer in Christ. The law does not regulate the behavior of the believer in Christ. Why? Because we're under a greater principle, and that is the, the power of the Spirit. It's not made for the Christian, but it is made for those who are lawless and rebellious. Now, we're going to see he's talking about unbelievers, and not just unbelievers. He's going to exaggerate to make the point. He's going to go to the Mosaic law, and he's going to take the worst conceivable violation of each of the points of the law to, to describe what the law is, who the law is made for. So now Paul's going to turn his attention to the second group. First group, believers in Christ. Second group, the ones for whom the law has been made. Now, again, I want you to note carefully, Paul is talking about people who are like this, not the vices themselves. In other words, the law is designed for certain people, but not certain vices or sins. Now, yes, it deals with the vices and sins, but of, of those people. In other words, it's not as if believers don't, break the commands of the law. They do. We, there are Christians who steal. There are Christians who lie. There are Christians who get involved in sexual immorality. But the law, the law, okay, is not designed for Christians, even Christians who violate it, even Christians who steal or lie or get involved in immorality. Why? Because now there's a greater power on the scene than the law. The law wasn't powerful. It was weak. But the, but the word of God and especially the ministry of the Holy Spirit is powerful. Walk by means of the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That is how God is dealing with the, how the sinfulness of the believer now. He's saying, leave it behind, right? Lay aside the old man. Be renewed 
in your spiritual mind by the word of God and put on the new man, which has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. That's God's solution, right? Substitution, replacement, out with the old, in with the new. So what is that saying? It's saying that Christians are not under the law. We've died to it. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Christians are not under the law. We have died to the law, not to the righteousness of the law, but to the law as the governing factor in our lives. The, the law as if, as if we're turning to the law to say, please guide us, please direct us, please restrain us. We're not doing that because as believers in Christ, we're not under the law. We're under something else, someone else. We died to the law so that we can live to Christ. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law. What? Christians? What about us? We've been released from the law. In other words, God said, listen, the law has, is, 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 uh, puts people under its subjection. You're released from that. You're, the, the, the law is no longer the master field. Why? Because you died to that by which you were bound. All of us, when we were unbelievers, were bound to the, to the law. Not necessarily the Mosaic law in and of itself, but certainly the principles, the, the restraint, as it were, of the law. See, the law is the restrainer, but for whom? The unbeliever, okay? We were in that system before we became believers. So it says, you've died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in what? Newness of the spirit. There's where we are now. We are not under the law. We serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. In other words, people who want to live under the law, they want to say that, you know what? As long as I keep the rules, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do in the plan of God. A lot of people want to do that, by the way. A lot of people just want to say, give me the rules. I'll just follow them and leave me alone. But you see, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is guided by the word of God and guided by the Spirit and walking by means of the Spirit. The Spirit is a person. He's going to guide and direct us. He's going to push us way beyond just the narrow rules, right, into a whole life, a life in newness of the Spirit, all right, a life in the fruit of the Spirit, a life of love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness and gentleness and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control. And he ends that passage up by saying, there's no law that governs these things. In other words, there's no law that says, thou shalt be joyful. <laughs> there's no law that says, thou shalt be patient. The law doesn't, doesn't deal with the Christian life. The Holy Spirit does. Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness. That's our subject. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to each and every person who believes. That's Romans 10.4. All right, let's go back to 1 Timothy now. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's look at verse 9 and continue now. Verse 9. This is where we get into the nitty-gritty of how Paul describes the people who the law is made for now. 1 Timothy 1.9. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
No, the law isn't made for the believer in Christ. The law is for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Again, let me belabor the point. Here, we talk about vice lists in the New Testament. There are several. There's a whole list in chapter 1 of the book of Romans. There's another one that we saw when we were studying 1 Corinthians. And those look at the vices themselves immorality for example here it's the people who practice it notice the law is not made for this group of people the believers but it is made for this group who is this group those people who are lawless and rebellious those people who are ungodly for the ungodly for sinners these are people unholy people profane people people who kill their fathers or mothers murderers people immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and he's talking about people. He's not talking about the lie. He's, he's putting people who are in the category of the liar, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, here in verses 9 and 10, I hope by now you've been shocked by at least one of the statements. I'll tell you the one that always shocks people, those who killed their fathers or mothers. I mean, that's shocking. I mean, that, that is the most flagrant violation of of the law honor your father and mother that one could think of so in other words right here now paul he, he is exaggerating he is trying to make it absolutely crystal clear that he's talking about man in his total depravity as the unbeliever who lives that way we used to right when we were dead in our trespasses and sins we also lived according to the prince of the power of the air we lit, not only did we have depravity, but we lived depraved lives. We all did before we became believers in Christ. Now we still sin, but we're no longer considered in the category of a person who is that. That's, that's the difference here. It's, a, it's, a something, it's maybe subtle, but it's really important to see this. Paul gives a list of people who violate the law in the most flagrant, extreme ways. Here in verses 9, the B part and verse 10, that we have unbelievers here, but they're linked to the most extreme kinds of violations of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to go through that. If, if you want, um, you can either now or later refer to the section in the Exodus that deals with the Ten Commandments, that presents the Ten Commandments. That's in Exodus chapter 20, from verse 3 to verse 17. You don't necessarily have to turn there because I do want you to see the actually you can you know why because i'm going to put on I, I have put on those slides the different statements that um i think i have maybe i didn't i'm getting old but anyway yeah i mean you can you can do it either way you can either stay in first timothy 1 9 and 10 or you can go back and forth between first timothy 1 9 and 10 and exodus 20 okay that'll be easier for people who have the old fact Fashion paper Bible, probably, than the people who are on electronic devices. But it's doable either way. All right. So now Paul's going to go through and he's going to look at the Ten Commandments. 
He's going to follow the order. We're going to see he's going to follow the order of the commandments when he goes through this, when he's talking about describing the unbeliever, okay, as a person who, right? And, and he's going to do it in a way that he, you can't miss that he's talking about the Mosaic law, and you also can't miss that he is coming up with the most disgusting violation of that law that he could think of, okay? Now, just like the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, Paul's going to begin with unbelievers who commit offenses against God. Now, he doesn't use the exact language, the exact things that he talks about, um, it, that the Bible talks about in the Ten Commandments, but, but they're similar. And they're all, the first four commandments all deal with man and his relationship to God. When you violate these, you're committing an offense against God, okay? You, have, you shall have no other gods before me is the first one. That's, that's, that's an offense against God himself. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are all things where these principles, these laws govern the relationship between a person and God. And then the last six, they deal with the behavior of men with other men and women. Okay, those are, those are the ones we'll see in a moment. But first, notice how he begins. But for those not made for the believer, but for those people who are lawless and rebellious. Now, these come absolutely first. They're at the head of this list of people in verses 9 and 10. And there's a good reason for it. You see, all the other violations come out of these two lawless and rebellious that describes the people basically the essence of what's going on here they're lawless and they're rebellious you see these describe people who are unconstrained by any moral norm they're lawless and they're rebellious now there's a difference but it's a subtle difference you see lawless people ignore the law they, 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 don't, they pretend there is no law, okay? Not in a good way, right? That they can do whatever they want because they, they don't want to even think about the law. They want to ignore it. They want to disregard it. That's the lawless. The rebellious intentionally violate it. They intentionally violate it. In other words, there's a difference between somebody who says, you know what, I'm not even going to look at the speed limit right now. I'm just going to go as fast as I want Okay, that's the lawless. And then people who say, oh, the speed limit is 35. Because it's 35, I'm going to go 60. See, those are the rebellious, the ones who intentionally violate a, a commandment. Okay, same thing with kids, right? Some of them just don't listen. <laughs> Others listen really well, and then they go out and intentionally do the opposite of what you want. There's lawlessness, there's lawless people, and there are rebellious people. Okay, the next pair. After the law, people who are lawless and rebellious, Paul lists for the ungodly and for sinners. The ungodly and sinners. The ungodly, those are people who have no reverence for God. They, 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 are, um, they behave blasphemously toward God. That's, that, that's the unholy. The un, I'm sorry, the ungodly. Ungodly people... Uh, they, they, it's not that they don't believe in God. They believe in God. They just don't revere him. They just don't honor him. 
They just don't, as it were, have the fear of the Lord, as it were. Instead, they act blasphemously toward the Lord. It's, it's, it's tied in. It's similar to the second commandment in it, where that says, don't make for yourself an idol. See, the opposite of reverence for the Lord is idolatry, a person who's idolatrous or blasphemous. Now, let's stop here for a minute because these are grievous violations and we've only gotten started here and yet and yet remember this is all in view of the gospel think about paul writing these things okay he's writing these things down he knows he's describing unbelievers in in the most horrible terms and at that point you know people can be forgiven i suppose not really not if you know the bible we're thinking man these guys are beyond the pale there's no hope for them. God is going to condemn them. These are the people that are going to hell. You see, that's what people think. People think. That's not the gospel, right? As a matter of fact, Christ died for these in Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly, for these people. Christ died for the lawless and the rebellious and the ungodly and sinners. Christ died for the unholy and profane. He died for those who killed their fathers or mothers. He died for murderers. He died for immoral men, homosexuals. He died for them. He died for kidnappers. We're going to see that means actually slave traders. He died for them too. He died for liars and perjurers. He died for all of them. And Paul's going to say in the next uh, section of 1 Timothy that, you know what? I've just been describing all these horrible people, unbelievers. Guess what? I was the chief of them. I was the chief of sinners. So I know what I'm talking about when I say that God's mercy is endless. It covered the blood of Christ covers any and all sin. So that's you know the legalistic people, they don't want to hear that. Right? That's why that you know the thing about the law and thinking that, you know, I, I, I want to go by those rules. The self-righteous do that. The self-righteous are those that think they're a little better. The self-righteous are those that actually think that. They could do that and make themselves righteous. And they're the ones who look down on these other, these other people. And yet the Lord says, you know what? I died for all of you. I died for all of you. Not only that, but God justifies the ungodly. That's Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly, the ones that act blasphemously toward him, but believe in his son finally. The ones that, are, I, that practice idolatry, he justifies them the moment they believe in Christ, in the gospel, the death and res- death of Christ for their sins, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The moment they believe that, God justifies them. What does that mean? Declares them righteous. So no matter what people are saying with their standards, God says, forget about it, because I'm the one who really establishes what's who's righteous and who isn't. And I say... That no matter what you've done, whether you killed your mother or father, or the moment you believe in Christ, I'm going to declare you righteous on the basis of the blood of Christ. That's the power of the gospel, of the word of the cross. That's the amazing thing that happened at the cross. The fact that nobody is beyond the pale. Nobody. The fact that no matter what a person does, the moment they believe in Christ, that God looks at that person and says, you know what? I know that all their sins have been covered by the blood 
of my son. And I know that they have, they have honored, they, they recognize that they're sinners and lost and need a savior. And they've believed in my son. And that's good enough for me. I declare them from this moment on to be perfectly righteous in my eyes, even though they're going to continue to commit sins. God justifies the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, so that's the ungodly. No reverence for God, blasphemous activity, idolatry. Then we have sinners, the ungodly and the sinners. Who are the sinners? Sinners oppose God. How? They do wrong in the sight of God. That's a sinner. They do wrong in the sight of God. They, 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 they violate the principles that God has established for them. They're sinners. They do wrong in the sight of God. Well, now let's think about it. Sinners opposed to God do wrong in the sight of God. That's wretchedness. That's, that is horrible. Right? The legalists will say, aha, sinners. They can't, they can't, there's no hope for them. However, Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were all sinners. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. There is none righteous, not even one. Who are you kidding? Paul, Paul actually, Romans 2 is all about the fact that those people who think, you know, they're going to look down their nose on other people. They're going to be teachers of the law and tell them what to do. Guess what? They commit the same sins themselves. There's none righteous. Not even one. All right, let's continue now. Let's, let's go through this together. All right? For the unholy and profane. For the unholy and profane. We're continuing in verse 9. We've seen the lawless and the rebellious. We've seen the ungodly and sinners. And now we're for the unholy and profane. The unholy, they are the opposite of the righteous. You see how the, the law is not made for the righteous? It is made for the unholy. It's the opposite of the righteous. The profane, Paul has already talked about. Those who are babblers, those who, who, who teach about myths, and their speech is empty and meaningless. Okay, they're the profane in the Lord's eyes. Let's continue. For those, this is the one, right? For those who kill their fathers or mothers. I remember there, was, there were these sons who killed their parents. I don't remember their name, but it was the most horrible thing. I think they, were, they, came and they lived in California and they killed their parents. It was shocking. It always is. And, and yet... This is how Paul is describing the second group. There are people who do this to their fathers and mothers. They're unbelievers. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They walk, they walk according to the course of the power of the air. They live in their lusts. Guess what? We all did at one time. Now, we didn't all kill our fathers and mothers. Don't get the wrong idea, but it's an extreme in other words, no, maybe you didn't, hopefully you didn't murder your father, but have you gotten angry with him? Jesus will say in the Gospels that if you, if you are angry at your brother, it's as if you murdered him. Oh, oh, so in other words, it's not as extreme, and yet, you know, the basis of it is something that we have all experienced, okay? That, that, that anger, that, that momentary hatred, or however you want to describe it, the resentment of parents, oh. You know, how many people have, have been involved in that? How many children, how many adults have been involved in that? So Paul is taking it to its 
maximum, taking it to its extreme, and yet that is part of the behavior of every unbeliever. And, and some believers too, but they're not under the law. Okay. Now, let me just say something about this statement for those who kill their fathers or mothers. Okay. Um, the, the King James uses the word smite. It's a little broader. Okay. It doesn't only mean kill. It can mean, it can mean kill, but it can also just mean strike forcefully and severely injure. Because he's going to say after this for murderers, okay? So he's saying included in this are not only those who murder their father or mother, but those who hit them, who try to injure them in a severe way. By the way, that alone had the penalty of death under the Mosaic law, okay? In Exodus 21, 15, for those who want to check that out. Smiting their father or mother came with it the penalty of death, striking them forcefully. I knew of a young man who, when he was maybe 18 or 19, his father was abusing his mother, and the kid went up and, and smacked his father in the face. And you know, I know something. That kid thought he had a calling to be a pastor, but he, he thought that he, he couldn't be anymore because he violated that principle. Didn't kill him, but he hit him. That's, what he's, that's part of what he's describing here in, um, in, in verse 9. In any event, those who smite, kill, or severely injure their fathers or mothers, they, they are extreme violators of the fifth commandment. Right? Fifth commandment is found in Exodus 20.12. You know it. Honor your father and mother. If you are hitting or murdering your father, you're definitely not honoring him. Of course, if you're angry at your father or your mother, you're not honoring them either. But, but take it to an extreme. If you take that anger to an extreme, okay, for those who are lawless, who are unconstrained and do whatever they want to do and, and operate on their emotions and impulses, they could, in fact, strike, hit, or severely injure their parents. It's an extreme violator of the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, Exodus 20:12. Paul goes on, murderers. This is another category, another description, another kind of person who is in the camp of the unbeliever for murderers. What's he talking about? Well, very simply, these people are extreme violators of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder, Exodus 20, 13. I want you to notice now that he is just walking through the different commandments. Okay, We have seen him say uh, the extreme violation of honor your father and mother, Exodus 20, 12, okay, is, <coughs> excuse me, to smite your father or your mother, to murder them or even to strike them. Thou shalt not murder. Murderers violate the fifth of the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. Okay, but the unbeliever, there are unbelievers who do murder. And again, those who don't murder have definitely acted out in their anger. Okay. Let's continue. Immoral men and homosexuals. By the way, there's no getting around the translation here as homosexuals. It basically, the word means those men who lie, and that means to have sex with other men. 
So he's saying that's an extreme. Now, if you think about the immoral man, that's like the person who fornicates or commits adultery <coughs> or any other kind of sexual deviancy, the immoral men and the homosexuals. What are these? Well, Seventh Commandment says what? You shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. And so the immoral, the one who is involved in fornication and adultery and other sexual sins. <coughs> and another extreme, now this isn't popular politically, but it's a fact. Men who, who, who have sex with other men, that's an extreme violation of the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. We don't think of it. Unfortunately, we've been, not we necessarily, but our culture has been programmed. And even the Supreme Court has told us that this lifestyle is acceptable. However, the Bible sees it as, a, as an extreme violation of, this, of the commandment that y'all shall not commit adultery. In other words, conventionally, I hate to use that word, but, but the basic sense in which somebody commits adultery, right, is a man who sleeps with another woman that's not his wife. Okay, let's take that to the extreme. A man who has sex with another man who can't possibly be his wife. Okay, so I probably get some hate mail for that, but whatever. The Bible is what it is. You got to stand behind the truth of the Word of God. Exodus twenty fourteen: Thou shalt not commit adultery. Immoral men and homosexuals are those who ex are extreme violators of that seventh commandment. Let's continue. Verse. We're now in verse ten. After immoral men and homosexuals, what do we have? Kidnappers. That's one of those places where translators now try to be a little uh, watered down. Kidnappers. Well, actually, the word in the Greek means slave traders. Why do I say that? Because that's the most extreme violator of the Eighth Commandment. We'll see that in a minute. This, rather than kidnappers... This really means slave traders. <coughs> Who are those? They captured free men and sold them into slavery. That is the most extreme violation of the Eighth Commandment. By the way, slave traders in the, in the Mosaic Law were under the penalty of death as well. But slave traders, men who captured free men and sold them into slavery... They, they're extreme violators of the Eighth Commandment. See how we're going through the commandments one by one in order? So that makes it clear that when Paul talks about <coughs> the law was not made for a righteous person, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, and he's talking about people right, who are, who are described in terms of the most extreme violators of the Ten Commandments. That's the subject at hand here. It's clear. If you look at the order in which he proceeds, it's exactly the same order as the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Now, why is a slave trader an extreme violator of the Eighth Commandment? Do not steal. Well, the answer is, is that rather than stealing stuff, they're actually stealing a man. They're actually taking away a person's freedom. That's the most extreme violator of thou shall not steal. Someone who actually steals somebody's freedom from them. <coughs> All right, let's keep going. Liars and perjurers. Now, let's see. We've had, we've had honor your father and mother. And then you have those who strike or kill their fathers and mothers. 
You shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery, all right? Perverse, immoral, sexual behavior, people who behave immorally, sexually, and homosexuals. You shall not steal, all right? That's, that's what we've just seen. Now, what's the next one? What's the ninth commandment? Well, those of you that have been going back and forth between 1 Timothy 1 and Exodus 20, you can see it, right, in verse 16. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness. What do we have here in First in First Timothy chapter one verse ten? Liars and perjurers. And these are violators of the ninth commandment. What what are we talking about? Well, here's the you might say. Well, what's the difference? Very simply, liars tell untruths. Generally speaking, under any circumstances, right? Bible says. Because all men are liars, okay? That's the general category of people, all right? Well, what's perjurous? That's a specific subcategory of the liars. It means that those who lie under oath, they lie under oath. In other words, they're in a court setting where they, what their words can end up having somebody convicted of a crime, and yet they lie. They, they're under oath. That's a perjurer. They lie under oath. But here in the context, it's in a court trial when you're when you're saying something that could end up really damaging your brother or your sister or any person bearing false witness. OK, by the way, it's related to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, because you see, when people, um, particularly in the in, in Israel, when they made a vow, they made it by something like the temple or the gold in the temple, and so forth. So they try to associate it. They're saying, listen, you got to believe me because I'm associating with, with the sacred things, the things of God, right? Well, when you, when you do that, all right, and, you and you're, you're doing it in vain, you know you're violating it, you're saying lies, and you've tied it to the Lord, you've taken the name of the Lord your God in vain. See, that, that, that third commandment, it doesn't just mean, you know, oops, you know, somebody said, you know, the name of the Lord, um, well, they said it in a harsh way or so forth. Now, that's bad. It's sinful. But what's really being talked about is when you're actually saying what I am promising here, what I am declaring here, I'm doing it in the name of the Lord. That's far worse. In any event, extreme violations of the ninth commandment, liars and perjurers, the commandment that you sh shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Exodus 20, 16. Then finally, he's basically gone through, by the way, you might say, hey, what about the 10th commandment? It's an interesting point. Here's the deal. He's trying to show obvious extreme behavior violations, not, not just external acts, but also what they say. But here's the problem with coveting. It goes on in the heart. It goes on in the heart. So he leaves that one out. Okay. In any event, he then, but he then goes to the widest net possible. In fact, including coveting and other things. In case he missed anything when he went through this, he then casts the widest net and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That covers the waterfront. In other words, here's my third mixed metaphor. He throws the book at them. You ever hear that expression? Throws the book at them. What does that mean? It's a prosecutor that comes with, up with any and all possible things that the person did in, in minute detail. That's what Paul's doing here. Again, the category, the unbeliever, 
You know, he does a very similar thing in Romans 2 and 3. Romans actually 118 to 320, where he indicts the whole human race. Non-righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, all of us had strayed. All of us, before we came to Christ and believed, believed the gospel, were guilty of some form of what's being described. We were in this camp. We were among those and one of those who were, the, who were violators of the Ten Commandments in some manner or fashion. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Sound teaching, by the way, it actually the word means healthy, wholesome, right? The, the pure water of the word of God, as opposed to the polluted stream of the false teachers. It's healthy or wholesome, as opposed to false teaching, which is diseased and deadly, right? Polluted stream. <coughs> That's really what he's getting at here. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. <coughs> All right. All of what he's saying is according to something, in accordance with. He's saying all this about the law and the two groups of people in accordance with something. What? The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Everything he said about the law, not applying to the righteous, applying to the unrighteous, the unbeliever, and He's saying all these terrible things about them, and yet all of them are in the context subject to the glorious gospel. And the glorious gospel is glorious for the believer, and whether they know it or not, it's glorious for the unbeliever. <coughs> By the way, those who clearly understand. I mean, here's the thing. People who are, uh, are uh, actually doing these things, somebody who actually struck or killed his father, clearly understands that that was wrong they may not they may not care but they know so they understand that you know what i've violated god. i've sinned against god i've done something that's horrible it's clear okay and once they once they come to the place where they see the enormity of it then they understand that i cannot make myself righteous look what i do things i don't want to do i do the things i want to do i don't do i am a wretched person and at that point, there's only one answer, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, nobody's beyond the pale of the blood of Christ. That's the glorious gospel. It applies to both groups. It, it, is, it is the way in which we ought to see the law now. And then Paul ends with what? With which I have been entrusted. Bold statement to make. But remember, he knew that the Lord had appointed him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, appointed them, pointed him to reveal the glory of the Lord. Blessed God. What does that mean? The person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ reveals the glory of God like no one else, nothing else. He's the flashing forth of the glory of God. <coughs> so the conclusion about the law and its appropriate use. Paul is saying, what I've taught you today about the appropriate use of the law is in agreement with the gospel that the Lord has entrusted to me. He has asked me to preach the gospel to all the Gentiles. And by the way, Paul fulfilled his mission. He finished his course. That's Romans 15, 19. You can go there now or later. But what does it say? That from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel 
of Christ. He finished his course. He fulfilled his mission. And therefore, he has established the principles that he is understanding that Christ is the end of the law for those who believe, for righteousness, and all the other things that are connected to the gospel. He preached those things. He taught those things. He was at pains to have Timothy learn those things, study those things, communicate those things. And one of the big ones was to make sure people understood that the law is not made for the righteous, the believers, but it does have an application to the unbeliever. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning for enlightening us in this important subject. We thank you that your word is so clear and, and, and that it's, it's for us to see it, what it's saying, and then to make sure we understand it and apply it and that we're no longer letting anybody put us under a yoke of slavery anymore as believers in Christ. And yet we understand that we can't use that as a means of doing whatever we want, but rather that freedom is to be used in serving one another. Father, we ask this morning that if anybody here has not believed in Christ, we ask that you would open their eyes to the understanding that every one of us is born a sinner, and yet you, your plan is to justify the ungodly. Christ died for sinners. That's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried on the third day he, he was raised from the dead so that all things are new. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ, his death for, their, for us, their sins, his resurrection for their justification won't ever perish but has eternal life. Father, we know that in this book of 1 Timothy, you will say you're not willing that any should perish. Help us that, for that to be on our hearts. Wherever we meet, your will is for them not to perish, no matter what they're involved in. So please help us to take that to heart and to change our behavior accordingly. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. As we close today, a couple of reminders. Again, we will be in person on next Sunday at our church building. So remember, just so don't go on Skype. you got to make the drive down. You can go on Skype if... Uh, I'm not saying you can't. There are certain situations and people that have to be on Skype, and that's what it's for. But we're actually going to be conducting the service face-to-face -face in our building. Remember our giving policy? Our giving policy comes from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You're not to tithe. Same thing we've been talking about today. The believer is not under the law. Tithing was part of the law. No, why? Because we are in the newness of the Spirit. The Spirit gives us gratitude, love, and appreciation for your things, Father. And we would ask that we would give in that same manner, freely, joyfully. We also, Father, want to make sure that everybody understands that we... Oh, right. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> we won't be on Skype at all next week, next Sunday. We will uh, have the live... Live video instead, which is better, of course. Well, I don't know. You have to see my ugly face, but whatever. All right. If you have any questions about the gospel or the message today, or really anything else about the Word of God and its application and its, and its principles, I always invite you to send me an email with that question. Again, it's pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, 
at lbible.org, lbible.org. All right, pastor at lbible.org. All right, so let's close one more time this morning, Father. We uh, ask as we leave again, Father, that we would um, take to heart the principles that we've studied today, that we've seen in your word, and that we would have them change our hearts, change our behavior as need be. Help us to take seriously your word and not to treat it lightly. We pray, Father, for all those that we meet who are still in the category of the unbeliever and to understand that we are to preach the good news to them. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.